Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Wednesday, March the 3rd. Coming up, we're going to talk about the threat of ticks, and we might not have to be so worried. A uh, doctor in the States has been approved for clinical trials for his prophylactic that could protect us from Lyme disease if we're being bitten by a tick. More on that coming up in raccoons. Apparently, they're scratching and biting people in Toronto. What we need to know about raccoons in the city. But first... Yesterday, the Ontario government announced widespread changes to the towing industry, and the information broke during the show, so we didn't get a chance to cover it. But I want to talk about it now. We welcome to the show Joey Gagne, who is a owner and president of Abrams Towing Services. You know them quite well. I got Abrams Abrams in my phone. I'm all good. Isn't that how the – I think that's how the ad goes. I'm all good. I got Abrams. Yes, it is. All right. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show. Uh, Joey, let's talk about these new rules and regulations. I guess the biggest um, portion of this that people are focusing in on is there's a pilot project beginning this summer. It establishes four designated zones along provincial highways that will give a single towing firm basically a monopoly. So you can't have other companies uh, racing into this scene of an accident. When do you find out what zone you have? And do you like this idea? Well, first of all, it's uh, the, the government is a procurement process, so they'll they'll put the the uh, zones out for tender. My understanding is uh, uh, there's four zones, and you can only get one zone, so there'll be at least four companies. Uh, and I believe they've, they've allowed for some other uh, you know consortiums to bid, so they could they, people can bid as a, as a group type thing. So there's room for everybody, uh, or for for a lot of people, not just everybody, but for a lot of people. Um, but the idea is that uh, you know the government's going to vet the, the operators that are going to cover those territories, and they're going to have a process for managing and and, and uh, holding them accountable for the, pri- the 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 type of service they provide. And I imagine the procurement process will take uh, you know two or three months, um, you know, giving time for operators to submit their proposals and uh, the government to review them, and then. Uh, potentially uh you know issue the the, uh, the zones in uh, early to midsummer does this um make you uh confident that the government has your back that they're going to deal with the uh the tow truck wars that have been ensuing and uh, some people have died some people have had their trucks and their livelihood burnt up well, I think the government's trying to take an approach to it that 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 uh there's bad behavior out there and there's been some criminal activity to creating some uh, the areas that, that seem to be, uh, you know, in some of the worst uh, abuses have happened, primarily on the highway, and uh, they are looking to uh, create some sort of system uh, where there is no system now. So the system now is basically whoever shows up gets the gets the fish, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, if you're the fish, then you feel like you've been taken advantage of. So they're they're trying to come up with a system that that eliminates that uncertainty for the consumer, and uh, you know, I, every system has to. You have to try it before you know whether it's going to be perfect or not. But I think it's uh, this is a system that's been used in other areas, uh, mm-hmm. other areas in North America. So it's uh, it's worth a try, I think. Yeah, the OPP and Municipal Police Services are going to form a joint forces operation team. And they will investigate criminal activity in the towing industry. I guess this would make you uh, feel a little less vulnerable knowing that there will be investigations and there is actually a team that will be um, specifically for 
anything, any criminal activity in the towing industry. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, anytime that uh, you've had, you know, bad behavior or criminal activity, you want to know that the police have your back. And I think if they've got, uh, you know, uh, they've got a plan to do that, I think, you know, we've got to, we have to support that. And, and uh, you know, I, I've uh, dealt with the police for, you know, decades and, you know, my experience has generally been pretty good. So uh, I, I have faith that uh, if they're working together with uh, a goal in mind to uh, make the, the system better for the consumer and for the the operators that want to work within the system. I think it's uh, it's a very it's very positive. Speaking of the system, I was shocked the tow truck operators are not required to complete training on the skills and equipment needed to safely tow a vehicle. You're governed by these this patchwork of regulations that are determined by municipalities, and they're not all the same. Are you happy that we're looking at a provincial framework that will? you know, give some sort of uniformity to uh, the tow truck I- industry and how operators are trained? Yeah, I've had a, I've been um, a big advocate for, uh, you know, standardized licensing and training for many, many years. And, you know, I've been in many meetings with the government to, to you know, to un- make them, try to make them understand that uh, the patchwork that we currently have with the municipalities is, it, it's there's no consistency to it, so it unfortunately creates a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, room for or a lot of gray area, and 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 it doesn't necessarily give you the best product. So uh, uh, I definitely think that uh, you know the idea of of a uh, you know a provincial license as opposed to a municipal license is a first step towards hopefully getting some standardization, mm-hmm. and then the idea of some sort of mandatory training. I think is uh, is terrific. I mean, we have that within our company, and I think a lot of companies do. So, uh, but the companies that don't, I think that you know, we're we're just looking for a better quality product, so that the the customer gets uh, you know the best service that they can get. Yeah, this isn't just about the towing industry and the safety within the towing industry. It's also about customer safety. How will these uh, changes affect our listeners if they're involved in a car accident on highways? Well, I mean. Uh, you know, I don't know how quickly this is going to be in place, but the the idea would be, you know, that uh, uh, if an operator is licensed, you'll have some sort of accountability process. So, uh, you know, you'll be able to look at the license on the truck and you'll be able to say, I, you know, I'm not happy with the service. Uh, I want to go to somebody and speak to them and say, hey, listen, I this this happened to me or this didn't happen to me or whatever. And, uh, you know, that would hopefully give the consumer some sort of protection. My only concern is that uh, the the zones that they're talking about only cover a specific area. So what happens outside of those zones? Do you know what areas they cover? Um, Where are we talking from? They're they're talking about the GTA, so the 401 and the GTA. They're talking about the QEW from Toronto to Hamilton, uh, uh, 400 up to Highway 9, and uh, the... uh, 401 all the way to, I think, Milton, somewhere close to Milton. So picturing the Milton along the 401. And, uh, you know, but the the concerns that I've had from other towers is that, you know, well, all those guys that are operating those territories, they'll just go to another territory and, you know, the bad behavior won't be, won't be managed. So there's uh, the the regulation is expected to have some impact on that. But from reading the regulations, there's some parts of it that, that aren't clear about, uh, about uh, 
um, you know, uh, the, the, the accident uh, management process. So the accident right. management process is the part that really is that I'm concerned about. It's uh, it's one of the reasons why they want to do these zones. It's called uh, the, the, the existing system is called first available. So basically the first truck shows up, gets the fish, as I said earlier. And my concern I'm the fish. is that I don't, you don't want to be the fish and you don't want to be, you don't want to be caught. Uh, in an area where they don't have these zones because potentially, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, there's still room for abuse. So we're at the very early stages of it. I think the, I give the government, uh, you know, uh, a lot of kudos for, for taking the, the, uh, the lead here. I know uh, uh, since Caroline Mulroney took over uh, that portfolio, she really took the lead on trying to, uh, get this this part of uh, the, the towing industry specifically mm-hmm. under control so and we've been I think I think it's great to give credit leaders. where credit's due Joey I don't have a ton of time so I, I want to get to a yeah. couple things before I let you go cuz I mean yeah. you know we could give maclades all day but uh do we'll these re- <laughs> do these rules set up a group of monopolies possibly I mean would there be any rules on what can be charged well, I think that that's part of the tender. I think that part mm-hmm. of the tender will be, will be, you know, your your what you do, what you can, you know, what what equipment you have, what experiences you have, what type of training you have, what type of, uh, you know, what's your proposal, what's your price, what's your, uh, you know, what, you know. So I think that's part of it. I, I believe that'll be part of it. And so, I, you know, a competitive bidding process is definitely going to be uh, better for the consumer. I mean, well, it's let's hope for the consumer, and they have options, yeah. right? Let's hope. And, oh, very quickly, in 30 seconds or less, what does this mean for emergencies? If there's a zoning area, if there's a multi-car pileup, if there's a big problem, would you be allowed to go from other zones to help out when there's decreased, increased demand, do you think? My understanding is that uh, they're going to have the ability for the, 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 the lead companies will be able to subcontract for extra resources and potentially use the you know, adjoining zones operators to help out. So there, it's it's a very much a collaborative process. You're only allowed to have one zone, but you can work with the other towers within your area to, you know, do it. So you'll just be kind of the head of the of the of the process, and you'll it'll more accountability be on you. And then if you bring somebody in to help you, then you right. you you own that responsibility. You're calling in the reinforcements. Right. Exactly. Okay, I get it. Well, Joey, it's been really informative to have you on. I wish we had more time, but we don't. So I'm going to let you go and, and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Clinical trials on a new Lyme disease prevention vaccine is happening south of the border. I'm joined by the doctor who's responsible for the vaccine, Dr. Mark Klempner of uh, Massachusetts Biologics at UMass Medical School, Medical School. Dr. Klempner, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thank you and uh, good morning. Can you start by giving us a crash course in Lyme disease for people that don't know what it is? I know that you contract it through a tick, but what's also beyond what it is? What's the challenge of diagnosing and treating it? Sure. So the way you get or catch Lyme disease is by the bite of an infected tick, um, usually during the spring, summer and fall uh, periods of time. And uh, when you get that, uh, the bacteria that is, um, that's in the intestine of the tick gets deposited in your uh, skin at the site of the bite. And then it disseminates to around your body, which causes the various symptoms of Lyme disease, acute Lyme disease. 
and they include dissemination to the joints and to the heart and to the brain and to the uh, to other organs uh, and to other areas of the skin, and that leads to all the manifestations. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very very different for the, for many people, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, only about seventy percent get a get the skin rash and. 30% don't, and then there's lots of other different manifestations. For us, the key moment uh, is uh, that interaction between the tick and the host where that the tick is actually transmitting the bacteria to you. And our medicine is designed to block that transmission uh, by either killing or immobilizing the bacteria while it's still in the tick. So we're never actually treating you for Lyme disease. What we're doing is we're preventing the tick from transmitting it to you. I want to go back to uh, your your introductory remarks because uh, this is not a vaccine. Uh, This is uh, what we call uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or it actually is an antibody. And the reason that that's important is that a vaccine, as we see with the current COVID vaccines, uh, presents you with uh, a little part of the of the microorganism, and then your immune system over a period of weeks or months uh, develops uh, the uh, antibodies that lead to protection. Um, in our case, uh, what we've done is bypass that whole immune system and actually invented the antibody itself uh, that uh, will co- that's preventative. And what's more important, perhaps is that uh, that uh, antibody is a single antibody. So we're not asking the immune system, make whatever you want uh, to the antigen to prevent. We're saying, here's a specific, one specific antibody that we believe will be safe and effective, and it'll provide immediate protection because your body will have that medicine in it uh, as a tick might bite you. Okay, so I have a question. Um, how does your uh, pre-prophylactic identify the tick? Is it because, you know, your immune system has time to realize that there's something there because they usually latch on for 12 to 24 hours, could be even longer? Yeah, no, it, it's not that at all. It actually is, is that the tick is taking a, a little drop of your blood. And if your blood happens to have our medicine in it, that tick will not be able to transmit the bacteria to you. So it's, it doesn't really, it's not finding the tick. The tick is just taking uh, a little drink of your, uh, of, of the blood that you right. have in order right. for it to reproduce. And, uh, and that blood contains, if it contains our medicine, you should be prevented from uh, getting Lyme disease. Now, um, full disclosure, my sister has Lyme disease, and it's just horrible because you have to catch it. You know, this is why this is such a big story. It's not just about me. It's about the fact that, you know, uh, the Center for Disease Control estimates that Lyme disease may infect nearly half a million Americans a year. And uh, uh, a lot of Canadians have Lyme disease. We're seeing it uh, more prevalently. The ticks are more active up here in Canada with uh, the drier, longer summer season. So um, one of the things that fascinates me the most about this is this actually would be a massive headline if it wasn't for the pandemic. Um, and it's it's not right now the headline that I think it deserves to be. 
Uh, it's been around for quite some time. There was a Lyme vaccine that was being used on humans. Correct me if I'm wrong. Why was that yanked? Yeah. So you're quite right. And, uh, and I will say that uh, the trials that we're beginning now uh, have been a little bit delayed by the pandemic, as you can imagine. Uh, so uh, we, we've experienced delays in, in moving this medicine along because of the pandemic as well, uh, and quite appropriately in, in many regards. Um, the, there was, as you say, uh, a, a vaccine, two vaccines actually, uh, in the uh, early 2000s that were studied in the 1990s, uh, and that were both shown to be uh, safe and effective. Uh, but uh, in the early 2000s, they were removed from the market largely uh, for a number of reasons that have been reviewed repeatedly. But I'll, I'll say one was uh, that there was a very big concern uh, that uh, there was might be some cross reaction with the antibodies that you made in response to the vaccine and the development of some autoimmune conditions like a certain autoimmune arthritis. Okay. Um, and then there were also, you know, concerns that it was uh, not highly endorsed by the CDC initially uh, and uh, developed a bit of a reputation that it was, you know, only uh, important for a small number of people. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, reasons uh, that it, uh, it didn't take hold, but I, I think that, uh, it, it, what, it turned out that there was not a safety issue uh, in uh, many hundreds of thousands of people who received the vaccine. It turned out that those concerns about an autoimmune phenomenon related to the vaccine were unfounded. Your um, and so that the safety issues, but I'm sorry. Your your, your pre-prophylactic goes right to the tick, as, as we said. So it attacks, you know, the source of infection at the source, uh, it being the tick. Is it working on a similar presse, uh, premise on how, you know, I have my, my dog on on some tick and flea medication. Is that a similar premise or am I oversimplifying? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, you know, it, it provides a circulating medicine that any time a, a tick bites uh, you, uh, it happens to drink that along with whatever else is in your blood. And uh, if it happens to have this, it, it, it prevents the transmission. So, but it only has to take a very little bit. You think mm -hmm. about it, a tick blood meal is on the order of a drop. Right. Uh, and uh, and that, that's a full meal. And it, it doesn't take much to neutralize the uh, the bacteria that are sitting in the intestine of the of the tick. Um, so uh, you should be well prepared. It is on the same principle as having uh, ready-made medicine in you. But unlike a vaccine, it takes a long time to build up that uh, pro that that amount of antibody. Uh, we're here, we're just going to give it to you in a subcutaneous injection. And so you're on phase one of, we know now, because we've had a crash course during the pandemic, three phases of clinical trials. Um, you've got 66 human subjects. They uh, are, have started the trial in Nebraska. Can you speak to the significance of the location and, um, you know, it, how you vetted for who's involved in, in the trial? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Um, 
So uh, you can imagine that in the in the phase one trial, our critical goal is to determine that it's safe and that it lasts in the circulation long enough uh, that there would be uh, prevention for the season of, uh, of risk to get Lyme disease. And uh, what we didn't want to do is to give this antibody to people who already had antibodies or had been exposed previously. And that's why we chose uh, an area that is very non-endemic for Lyme disease, like Lincoln, Nebraska, because we didn't want anybody who had previous Lyme disease or exposure to the bacteria that cause Lyme disease so that it would confound the presence of the antibody that they might develop, uh, you know, in addition to the one that, that we administered to them. So that's the reason why it's there. Of course, when we move from strictly looking at safety and uh, the so-called pharmacokinetics or uh, how long the antibody will last in your circulation, uh, when we move from there to looking at eff efficacy uh, in the field, uh, we'll of course do that in highly endemic areas. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, that will not be in Lincoln, Nebraska. That will be in the most highly endemic areas of the United States. If effective, the shot hopefully will be available in the spring of 2023. Is that right? That's our goal. We figure that, uh, remember, because we need to provide protection for about nine months or so, uh, the FDA has asked us to follow these people in the phase one trial for a year. Mm. And then, so if we, if we have this time next year, uh, you know, all the data in from the phase one trial, uh, and it looks as promising as we anticipate it will for both safety and, and duration, uh, we'll proceed then uh, to uh, the efficacy trial, the phase two, three trial. And we would hope that that would start about this time next year, uh, maybe a little beyond that. And that would bring us into 2023 with completion of that study. Um, which uh, by the end of the year, you might uh, conceivably uh, have uh, an approved medicine. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm so happy you're working on this. It's not a one and done. It's going to be a yearly shot. And I will line up happily to get this shot because I understand what Lyme disease does and how it complicates your uh, quality of life. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Kleppner. Thank you so much. Be well. Have a great day. I'd like to welcome to the show Paul DeSalvo, who's manager of Healthy Environments with the Toronto Public Health. Uh, Paul, it's good to have you on the show. I was curious about what's going on with our raccoons. Apparently, sightings are up. And we're hearing about uh, disease raccoons and raccoon-related injuries that have skyrocketed since last year. What's going on? Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, we we have seen exactly right, as you've mentioned, uh, a bit of an uptick um, in both uh, reports to Toronto Animal Services of sick and injured raccoons. They've seen almost a triple, um, in, you know, increase in the number of uh, service requests they've received compared to 2019. And at Toronto Public Health, we've seen an equally significant uh, increase um, at about 62%, though. Uh, in reports of um, people being bitten and or scratched by raccoons compared to a two-year average in 2018 and 2019. So uh, definitely that's been occurring over the last year. My experience with raccoons in the city of Toronto is when you come upon them, normally 
they give you the stink eye, turn around and slowly lumber away. They're not coming at you. So when we're talking about people that have been bitten or bitten or scratched, are they approaching the animal? Or, and is this a situation where the animal, which normally is giving you the stink eye and walking away, is not taking it? So, yes, in the, the quite a significant number of our Did we just lose him, fellas? Okay. Chris is going to... Oh, wait. Can I get to, you to repeat that again? I We just lost your phone, Paul. Oh, sorry about that. That's so, okay. yes, um, in, indeed. So uh, the majority of the cases that we've had for the bites and scratches over the last year and a bit uh, have been individuals who have been attempting to feed raccoons, picking them up. So they have provoked the raccoon into the bite or scratch that they've received from the raccoon. Uh, and uh, that's usually in the majority of cases that we've seen that's resulted in these um, injuries to people. Now, I hear we're seeing a lot more uh, because restaurants haven't been doing the same volume of service in during this pandemic. We're seeing more uh, rats moving into neighborhoods and, and uh, in, in people's you know backyards or gardens. Uh, are we seeing more raccoons looking for food as well? Because that's what's going on with the rats. They're looking for food sources. Is that why we're seeing more raccoons? So on the one hand, we have our stay-at-home orders and, and uh, people are generally a bit more indoors. And so raccoons, uh, while they have normally adapted to life in the city and, and are usually quite tame and don't have fear of humans, um, meaning that they will roam around, usually more so at night than during the day, uh, it might be, yes, that due to these stay-at-home orders, um, uh, in one way or another, we've, we've had the raccoons being able to just wander around a bit more than they might usually do so. The rule breakers. They're not staying at home. Uh, a, a bit, a bit, yes. That was my attempt at, at humor. How do you spot a sick raccoon, Paul? Like, how, how do you know that this raccoon might have distemper, might uh, be rabid? Because these are, these are real fears. It's not something to mess around with. Right. So normally raccoons, uh, as I've mentioned, they're quite tame and they have uh, little to no fear of humans. But um, when they are sick with uh, distemper or, in the rare case, uh, rabies, while we haven't had it in Toronto uh, in quite a long time, since 1997, in any type of land-based um, wild animal, uh, they may appear to be wandering around aimlessly. Uh, on occasion, they may become aggressive. Uh, uh, you might see some mucus discharge and some, you know, um, around the eyes and the nose and, and mm. so some other symptoms like seizures, uh, chewing fits. Uh, so uh, those types of abnormal behaviors uh, are usually indicative of, of either distemper. Uh, and like I said, we haven't had rabies in Toronto in quite a while. Uh, and um, But the potential is there as they are considered a high-risk species for, for rabies transmission. There's no doubt about it. I can speak from experience. I had three babies that were left. They were kind of hiding out on my back deck in a box, I guess, waiting for mom. She must have been scared by a dog in the neighborhood and, and was coming back later. She finally came back to get them the next day. But I was really concerned about these sweet, cute little raccoons that were, you know, willing to follow me like little ducklings. They were just adorable. I did not touch them. I did not pick them up. But I can understand why some people would think, oh, my gosh, I like this this animal really like I'm communing with nature. We, we've got something going on here. I want to reach out and give it a little pat. If you're bitten or scratched by a raccoon, what should you do? So uh, if someone is bitten or scratched, um, 
uh, although primarily they should try and stay away, but in the event that they're bitten or scratched by a raccoon, they should immediately wash the bite or scratch with um, soap and water for at least 15 minutes, give it a good flushing, uh, potentially apply an antiseptic to the wound, and then uh, seek medical attention from their primary care provider or another healthcare provider just to discuss their risk uh, and whether treatment options or, or treatment should be discussed based on the nature of the wound and, and the type of incident that occurred. What about animal services? Should we be reaching out to someone, you know, that, you know, this this might be an animal of concern that should be maybe put in a live trap and, and checked? Yes. Yeah, so if, if residents are concerned with raccoons, especially the sick or, or injured raccoons, definitely calling 311 uh, and lodging a service request. And um, those those are usually dispatched to Toronto Animal Services. But um, uh, it, primarily that the main idea is to do that as opposed to approaching them and, and, and feeding them or, or trying to pick them up. So definitely, if concerned, do call 311 and, and a service request will uh, be patched through to uh, Toronto Animal Services. Paul, are we dealing with more raccoons in the city or is this a case of, you know, you mentioned the state of home order. We're just at home more looking out the window. Uh, we're seeing more wildlife. So uh, I, that's that's likely the reason uh, that uh, we are staying at home more. We are maybe going outside for exercise uh, and then we're likely encountering them a bit more often. Um, like I mentioned in, in a significant number of cases of the reports of injuries that, um, you know, individuals are in, throughout the city are, are feeding them, which, which we're, we're reminding people not to do and to stay away from, from uh, raccoons. But that's likely the reason that uh, with the state of home orders and people outside exercising and, and taking their walks, uh, they're they're probably encountering raccoons a bit more often. Paul, I want to thank you for your insight in this topic and remind people, stay away from the wildlife. They are wild for a reason. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure having you along. Don't forget, you can subscribe and we'll be waiting for you daily. Just click subscribe wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Have a great day.